0: Welcome to Suspending the Rules, Bloomberg Government's weekly look at what's happening in Congress. Democrats in Congress have started their push to block President Trump from using emergency authority to reprogram money originally intended for other purposes, instead to build a wall on the southern border. Welcome to Suspending the Rules from Bloomberg Government. I'm Adam Taylor.
1: And I'm Danielle Parnas. Back from recess, Congress is in full swing this week, with dozens of hearings scheduled in committees across the House and Senate. The House is also going to consider two gun background check bills, which we talked about in last week's episode, and the Senate will be taking up nominations and an abortion bill.
0: Later in the show, we'll look at some of this week's hearings focused on data security and privacy. We start, however, with the president's emergency declaration and Democrats' attempt to block him. Michael Smallberg and Adam Shank from the BGov Legislative Analyst team join us now. Hey, guys. Hello. Hello.
1: Democratic Congressman Joaquin Castro of Texas introduced a resolution to undo the president's emergency declaration with a majority of the House co-sponsoring the measure. Can you give us some background on the legal basis for the declaration and this resolution?
2: Yeah, so to understand what's happening here, we need a little bit of a history lesson. Presidents have taken emergency actions throughout U.S. history. I mean, you think of Abraham Lincoln suspending habeas corpus during the Civil War or FDR closing banks to halt bank runs during the Great Depression. Um, But over the years, Congress grew grew concerned that presidents could access an unlimited number of special authorities once they declared uh, an emergency and that some emergency declarations remained in effect long after the original emergency ended. So Congress passed uh, the National Emergency Act, or NEA, in 1976 to place some checks on the president's power. That law does still give the president broad authority to declare a national emergency. It doesn't really specify or limit what constitutes an emergency, but it does place some limits on his authority. So number one, it requires the president to specify which special powers he wants to access uh, by declaring a national emergency. So for example, um, President Trump is invoking an authority that will let the Defense Department move around some um, unobligated funds um, for military construction that can now be used potentially to build that border wall. And number two, national emergencies are required to end one year after they go into effect unless the president renews them or Congress can take action. Uh, they can pass a joint resolution to end a national emergency. That's never been done before, but that's the process um, that the House is set to begin this week.
0: The president is planning to transfer almost $7 billion of federal funds to wall construction, but only a part of that would actually happen pursuant to the emergency, a big chunk being. Reprogrammed is under what the White House describes as regular executive authority. What's the breakdown of money that's going to be reprogrammed here?
2: Yes, yeah, so the White House says that by declaring a national emergency, the president can access as much as $3.6 billion in unobligated military construction funds. But the White House says he can also use his regular executive authority to access uh, about $600 million from the Treasury Department's asset forfeiture fund and about $2.5 billion from the Defense Department's drug interdiction account. Um, although, as our colleagues at Bloomberg News reported, there may actually be only about $85 million that's available in that counter drug account. So the Pentagon may still have to shift some funds around, which could set up a conflict with Democratic appropriators.
1: And so this resolution from Democrats only blocks some of that funding, right?
2: Yeah. So this would really only get to that that $3.6 billion that could be moved around um, from military construction appropriations. But even there, you know, within DOD, th- this is still a bit of a minefield. BGov's defense reporter, Travis, Triton reported last week that DOD already said that about $1.6 billion for military family housing is basically off limits. So DOD may have to, you know, pick some other projects, you know, that could include construction on military bases. Obviously, lawmakers from those states are gonna raise a stink about losing any money there. That could come from funds that house facilities for the F 35 fighter jet and other important assets. So, you know, as I said, this is a bit of a, a minefield when it comes to picking and choosing which accounts will get hit. Right.
3: And the thing I would add there is the Democrats last week circulated a spreadsheet that identified something like $15.5 billion worth of projects that could be targeted by this emergency order or whose funds could be sort of transferred out of there. And some of those projects went back to fiscal 17. And it was a it was a very extensive list. But the one thing that was pretty interesting about it was that a number of the projects were overseas, either in, in U.S. territories or, or military bases in Europe. And one thing that you would probably look for the administration to do is to transfer funds from areas that Michael had mentioned where you're going to cause pain in congressional districts so they'll look to avoid that. So the most likely targets on that list if they do end up using the emergency authority would be those sorts of bases and projects that are overseas and not necessarily
0: linked to, you know, ongoing military operations. The joint resolution we're talking about gets expedited treatment in in Congress under the National Emergencies Act. Tell us what happens with it now that it's been introduced
3: so it's been introduced like you said and then the relevant committees in each chamber so we're, we're talking about the house now so the relevant committees in the house have a limited number of days to consider if they don't approve the bill and report it out then it is automatically placed on the on the calendar or can then automatically br- be brought up for a vote in the house which is obviously going to happen they're, they're sort of skipping the, the committee step at this point where it's just going right to the floor tomorrow or on tuesday and then the, the house will pass it in the Senate, then once it gets there, it's not subject to the, the typical rules that you have for legislation in the Senate. So it doesn't require 60 votes. It only requires a simple majority. And it, it can be automatically placed on the calendar in a similar manner to the House, which means that Democrats in the Senate can force a vote. And this is where it kind of gets very difficult because Republicans were sort of behind the scenes arguing against the having the president declare this emergency order. A number of Republicans were very critical of it, including Senator Marco Rubio and a handful of others. Susan Collins has said that she would vote to terminate the, the emergency order, so vote in favor of the resolution. So looking ahead, it's feasible that it would then pass the Senate. And the, the bigger question, you know, becomes, do they get enough support to override a presidential veto? And I think, I think that is the bigger question and it is unlikely. There, I think, are probably somewhere in the neighborhood of five to 10 Senate Republicans who would vote in favor of the resolution and get it passed, you know, and sent to the president where he would then have to veto it. But it, I mean, uh, even that is a little dicey,
0: I think. And getting to two thirds in either chamber, obviously a very big hill to climb.
3: Yeah, that is, that's a massive, a massive hurdle to get over. It's one thing to to hit 51 votes when you only need, you know, half a dozen senators or so, you know, and it's another thing entirely to get to this, you know, two thirds threshold, which is to 67 or, or so senators that you would need. And, and I you know, I just, I don't see a path forward there for the Democrats.
1: Tell us about some of the other legislation Democrats have proposed to counter the president's plan on the border?
2: Yeah, so we discussed a few of these options uh, on last week's episode, but House Democrats have introduced some bills that would bar the use of appropriated funds in other areas for a border wall. So, for example, disaster aid, Army Corps of Engineer funding. And I would expect, by the way, for some of these measures possibly to come up as riders as we look ahead to the fiscal 2020 spending season and some of those appropriations fights. Democrats are obviously going to try to do whatever they can in the future to limit appropriate Funds to be moved around for this border wall. Other bills would basically limit the administration's ability to acquire land from landowners along the southern border. We may even see some legislation. Uh, Mike Simpson, a Republican from Idaho, said Congress should act to actually change that in national the National Emergencies Act to limit how the president uses emergencies to get around Congress. So there are a number of uh, actions, both on the legislative side and also legally. Of course, we're going to see a number of lawsuits from lawmakers, but also from from public uh, Citizen and other uh, nonprofit groups, as well as landowners, trying to challenge the the president's emergency action.
1: Thanks, Michael and Adam. We'll be right back to talk about data security. No fewer than three committees will hold hearings this week on the subject of security and privacy related to financial services information and consumer data. Michael Smallberg has stuck around to discuss the issue, which he's been following with Adam Taylor. So
3: guys, what's the impetus for these hearings?
2: So these hearings uh, are coming as uh, tech companies, retailers, privacy groups are pushing Congress to pass a a comprehensive data privacy and security law following years of of high-profile scandals. We've seen a a pretty steady increase in, in the number of data breaches and personal records exposed. Uh, and these include um, not just hacks by outside parties but also um, records that are exposed through weak internal security policies. And we're talking here about breaches at uh, companies and institutions across the public and private sectors, uh, including many household names. Uh, I, I think the the biggest breach on record still is Yahoo. That breach occurred in 2013 but wasn't disclosed um, until years later. And it basically affected all 3 billion uh, of Yahoo's user accounts. But you know, it also affected other other tech companies have been hit. MySpace, uh, eBay, and LinkedIn, we've seen major hacks or breaches at companies like Marriott uh, and Target. Hospitals and health insurance companies like Anthem have been hit. But we've also also seen um, some pretty high-profile attacks at financial institutions, including a major one at at Equifax, uh, which is one of the three major credit reporting companies that affected about 150 million records uh, of sensitive financial data.
0: It's not just breaches and and kind of malevolent attacks. There's also just commercial data sharing, the the Cambridge Analytica scandal comes to mind where Facebook had a contract with this research group that gave them access not just to customers or, or Facebook users who opted in, but also their friends who had no idea that this was happening. And Cambridge Analytica got hold of all of their data as well without their consent. And that raised a lot of red flags for a lot of people, especially as more extensive and comprehensive data is collected on anyone who uses online services, essentially. So you have all of that happening. And the European Union adopted a very strict data standard. California passed a very strict standard at the state level. And those kind of pushed the industry, the tech industry and retail industry to to come together and join consumer advocates in pushing for some kind of legislation to address the topic and create a, a comprehensive federal standard for the first time.
1: So, if there's no comprehensive standard now in the U.S., how is data security governed?
0: So, there's kind of an industry by industry and state by state patchwork happening here. Financial services and healthcare companies face really the most rigorous kind of regulation on data: what they, what, what data they keep, how they keep it, who has access to it, who they can share it with. Beyond that, it, it really depends on the industry. So, state DMVs have a standard. Federal agencies have a standard. And in, in the states, they can adopt their own as California has done. That doesn't go into effect until 2020. But it, it's kind of set a marker for, for what states can and, and might be willing to do going forward. On the enforcement side, the Federal Trade Commission has civil authority to enforce violations under its trade practices. So it, it can be considered an unfair or deceptive trade practice to commit privacy violations or to allow data breaches through lax security. And the FTC can enforce that, but they generally don't enforce it Directly, they'll they'll negotiate a settlement where companies have to abide by stronger privacy practices and security practices. And if they violate that consent decree, a court can come in and enforce it with civil fines. But there's no ability to enforce it with criminal sanctions or to just impose a fine directly by the FTC.
3: Can we just uh, walk back for just a second? You talked about California sort of having a standard similar to the EU, and then we know that the the, the there are sort of the federal laws governing healthcare records, like you mentioned. But what does the deb- Debate look like over that? Are our lawmakers looking to create a, a federal standard that would then preempt California and maybe have like a softer sort of enforcement or, or level of, of requirements? Or
0: what does that what does that debate look like? That that is the the biggest aspect of the debate that. That we're going to see on the Hill starting in earnest this week. The industry would really like state laws like California's to be preempted. Senator Marco Rubio introduced a bill that has the backing of some industry groups that would require private companies to meet the same standard when handling data as federal agencies, and it would preempt any state laws that go farther than that, which would include California's. So there, there's this debate over whether there should be a state by state patchwork, which industries across the economy really don't like because it, it raises compliance costs. Whereas advocates want the strongest protections in place, whether that's preempting states or or not. So that's going to be a huge debate and I think we, we're going to see some compromise on it where we might see greater enforcement authority for the FTC in exchange for some kind of preemption. But that's that's speculation at this point.
1: Michael the Financial Services Committee is looking specifically at credit reporting companies in their hearing this week. What's happening there?
0: Yeah so as I mentioned there was a
2: a huge data breach affecting Equifax, which is one of the three major uh, credit reporting companies. They hold credit and financial information that can be used to determine whether you qualify for a loan, a job, insurance, housing. So again, these are highly sensitive financial records. And that 2017 hack at Equifax compromised the information for about 150 million people, you know, their names, social security numbers, other personal information, as well as credit card numbers for, for some people. So this got a lot of attention from both Republicans and Democrats on the Hill. As you said, the House Financial Services Committee is holding a hearing on credit reporting companies this week, uh, which will almost certainly include uh, some discussion of Equifax. Chairwoman Maxine Waters said she will be introducing comprehensive legislation on credit reporting companies. Her bill uh, in the last Congress would have required those companies to uh, provide free monitoring and uh, identity theft services following a breach. But it's not just in the House. Uh, On the Senate side, Senate Banking Chairman Mike Crapo and ranking member Sherrod Brown um, have asked for input on what Congress could do to give consumers more control over the data that's used by these credit reporting companies. And some Senate Democrats actually want to go further and impose stiffer penalties for breaches of credit reporting information. So, you know, we probably will see some action in the House and or the Senate looking specifically at those credit reporting companies.
3: Thanks, guys. BGov subscribers can find all of Michael and Adam's coverage, including an on-point briefing presentation on data security and privacy at bgov.com.
1: That does it for this week's episode. We'll talk to you again next time.
0: Thank you for listening to Suspending the Rules. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Find more on the subjects we discussed today and a whole lot more from Bloomberg Government at about.bgov.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at bgov. The legislative analyst team is Sarah Babbage, Noreen Chowdhury, Danielle Parnas, Michael Smallberg, and me, Adam Taylor. Our editor is Adam Shank. Nico Anzalata is our sound engineer. Our theme music is Home Organ by Zach Nesita. More information on that can be found at premiumbeat.com.